Hey everybody, this is Joseph, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast. Each week, this show features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres, and we hope that they encourage you in your faith and work as you listen. This fall, we're preaching a 10-week series of sermons called When Religion Fails, and we're using Jesus' teachings and parables from the Gospel of Luke to reconsider what it means to truly follow Christ. Here's this week's sermon. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, A very merry Reformation Day to you and yours, church. I hope you've got big plans this afternoon to write out some of your top theological grievances and nail them to the doors of the church. Wait, I'm being told by the facilities team they're hoping no one actually does that this year. Now, technically, Reformation Day is tomorrow. October 31st, because church history remembers that on October 31st in the year 1517, a pastor in Wittenberg, Germany, brought his opinions about the state of things in the church to the public square by nailing them to the doors of Castle Church there in Germany. That man was Martin Luther, seen here, already annoyed at all of your theological errors. As you may know, Martin Luther was one of the architects of what would become the Protestant Reformation. He was also something of a hothead, especially in his writings, wasting no opportunity to really let his opponents know just what he thought of their wrong opinions. When I was in seminary, my Lutheran friends rejoiced that some student at a different seminary had put together a website called The Lutheran Insulter, where when you refresh the page, a fresh insult from Martin Luther's writings will pop up. It's still up. Here's a taste. To poor Latronus, his theological adversary, Luther would write, you are full of poisonous refuse and insane foolishness. In a sermon called, strangely, On Keeping Children in School, Luther goes after his Catholic opponents by saying, you are like hogs, wallowing forever with their noses in the dunghill. And you seem to me to be a real masterpiece of the devil's art. And in his boldly titled Against the Roman Papacy Treatise, Luther would explain why his opponents were suffering by saying, yes, What has happened to you is what must happen when one paints the devil above the door and asks him to be godfather. Ah, Luther. Whether or not he actually nailed anything to the church doors, historians are doubtful of this for good reason, his public disputes with certain practices of the church that he was a priest in would ultimately lead to one of the most significant theological and societal shifts in the Christian church in over five centuries, a shift that would totally change the landscape of Christian faith around the world. On the positive side, it would recenter the identity of the church upon the dying and rising of Jesus Christ as the sole means to salvation. It would re-emphasize the gracious mercy of God, which arrives at our door through faith and not through human effort. It would reignite a passion for the scriptures, making them the chief 
witness to the work of God in the world and causing them to be translated into the common language. It would reform Sunday worship services to make them accessible to all people and not just those who were learned. There's much we have to be thankful for because of the events of the Reformation. Beyond this theological reimagination, if it weren't for the Reformation, <clears throat> church pastors would likely not ever be parents or spouses. If it weren't for the Reformation, people might not be allowed to take both the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper. If it weren't for the Reformation, our pew Bibles may still be printed in Latin. If it weren't for the Reformation, public education might be something only wealthy boys could attend. And so once a year as a church, we remember these things, we sing those songs, we go home and we raise a pint to Brother Luther, John Calvin, and Ulrich Zwingli, and Martin Bootser, and Peter Daphnis, and Thomas Cranmer, and John Alasco, and Guillaume Farrell, and to the countless other men and women who charted a new theological course for the church in the 16th century. Today here in our worship service, we've relocated the pulpit right here in the middle, right underneath the cross to remind us that faithful preaching of the gospel, a gospel centered in Christ's death and resurrection, was a hallmark of the churches of the Reformation. We've hung the confessional banners around the space that symbolize the historic confessions of faith that define the shape of our theology as Presbyterians. We've changed the liturgy a bit today. We're only singing the Psalms, a reminder that our Reformed ancestors who gathered in Geneva, Switzerland in the mid-1500s only sang Psalms. And their four-part harmonization was so beautiful that one Catholic pilgrim who attended on the sole purpose of criticizing the, the Protestant worship wrote back to a friend that even though he found the whole service to be heretical and foolish, the singing of the psalms by the people of God was like the singing of the choirs in heaven. It's Reformation Day, church, and we are here to preach the gospel as we try to do each Lord's Day. And today, the good news of the gospel takes on a very flannel graph-infused, childlike tone as we trot out the diminutive figure of your favorite chief tax collector and mine, Zacchaeus. In 10 years of preaching, I have somehow not had an opportunity to preach on Zacchaeus. And so I spent much of this week wrestling with why this story is even part of Luke's gospel and why it matters to the church. But first things first, all together now, church. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm coming to your house today. For I'm coming to your house today. Ah, Zacchaeus. What a tale. But as rousing of a song as that is, it's a rather incomplete telling of the story, isn't it? Songs missing some good parts. You know, the parts where the crowd gets really angry at Jesus for going to Zacchaeus' house. The part where Zacchaeus sells half of his assets and repays four times the amount he's cheated people. The song is missing what is arguably the most significant summary Jesus gives of his whole identity and mission and purpose 
Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Sometimes the Bible stories we heard as children need to be represented to us as adults so that we might encounter God's truth in them anew and afresh. The story of Zacchaeus is a rather peculiar one, a story that comes actually in a line of three successive peculiar stories in Luke's gospel about what it means to find Jesus and then what does it mean to follow Jesus. All sorts of people are trying to find Jesus and trying to figure out what it means to follow after him. Jesus has a fairly large crowd following him around now, and now he's making his final pilgrimage down south to Jerusalem, and on the way, Luke, the gospel writer, is going to highlight a few key people who are trying to make sense of who this Jesus guy is and what he means to them. In Luke 18, you get the story of a very wealthy man who seeks Jesus out to ask him a theological question. He's somebody who knows his Bible inside and out, but he's also a person who held so tightly to his financial resources he couldn't imagine sharing them with the poor as Jesus tells him to. He wants to follow Jesus, but he couldn't figure out how to give up his love for his own stuff. He goes away sad. Lesson number one, there's a difference between reading the Bible and doing what it says. The rich man knew the scriptures but couldn't follow through on basic commands of generosity and almsgiving. The second story, on the heels of that one, Jesus gets to the outskirts of Jericho and he's accosted by a loud, tireless, blind beggar whom everybody is trying to hush up. This guy is seeking Jesus out, hoping that Jesus will be able to liberate him from his blindness and subsequently from his poverty. And in spite of the crowd shushing him, he keeps shouting at Jesus at the top of his voice until Jesus calls him over, talks to him, and heals him. And the text says he follows after Jesus and glorifies God. Lesson number two, sometimes seeking after Jesus makes you look foolish, but we should never stop pleading for mercy from the Savior, despite the fact that others may try to quiet you down. And the third story that comes in a row is this story, today's story. Jesus in the middle of Jericho, passing through Jericho, not planning on lingering long in Jericho. He's on his way. He's close to Jerusalem, just a few miles. He's passing through. And in the midst of the city, we meet a guy named Zacchaeus, whom Luke calls a chief tax collector. A guy who wasn't just collecting taxes, he was collecting taxes from the tax collectors. He was in charge of all of the regional tax collectors, and he was making a killing. Business was good for Zacchaeus. He oversaw those who overcharged the Jewish people, for what Rome required in tribute. He was probably not the person who actually went door to door collecting the taxes, but he was in charge of the ones who did, and he enjoyed ample material benefits. But he also enjoyed a very negative reputation in town. And today, on this day, he catches wind that Jesus is coming to town, and so to satisfy his own curiosity, he wants to see Jesus. The text says he wants to see who Jesus was. He just wants to see him walking by. He's not on a mission for any other purpose. The problem is he's a wee little man. And so in order to see Jesus, he has to climb up in a tree to put himself above the crowd 
so he could just catch a glimpse of Jesus' face as it goes by. Here's a tree in Jericho. It's a sycamore tree. It's a tree that dates back almost 2,000 years, if you can believe it. It's called, you guessed it, Zacchaeus' tree. And pilgrims to Jericho can stop and see what may have been the tree. We don't know. From the branches of this tree, however, Zacchaeus was seeking after Jesus. But it turns out that Jesus was actually the one seeking after Zacchaeus. Jesus gets there, looks up the tree, sees Zacchaeus there, calls him by name. Zacchaeus, he says, you must come down, for I am coming to your house tonight. Zacchaeus is happy about this. He gets a great social guest. But the crowds are angry. Angry that Jesus is going to this guy's house for dinner. Somebody who is the worst of the worst. They were angry at Zacchaeus for just being there. They were annoyed at Jesus for not reprimanding Zacchaeus for his devious and immoral job performance. Sensing the crowd turning on him, Zacchaeus turns to Jesus and makes a solemn pledge. Lord, he says, I will give half of my possessions to the poor straight away. Then if I have ripped off anybody of anything, I will pay them back four times as much. Notice, church, that Jesus doesn't ask him to do this. Jesus never quotes Zacchaeus chapter and verse about where in the Bible it says that bearing false witness against your neighbor is big time sin. Jesus doesn't guilt this guy into making public amends. He just calls him by name and says he wants to eat dinner with him. But something in this exchange is enough to trigger within Zacchaeus a deep sense of contrition for his own complicity in unjust acts towards his neighbors. Something in Jesus naming him and expressing a desire to eat with him provokes Zacchaeus to make a tangible move to make things right. And Jesus ends today's story by saying that he has come here. He has arrived here in order that he might seek out and rescue the lost. That he might seek out the Zacchaeuses of the world, people whom everybody else have written off as corrupt or evil or despicable, and offer even to them a way to find mercy and grace and forgiveness. I have come to seek and to save the lost, Jesus said. Church, what are we going to do with this story about Zacchaeus? In my basement, when my four boys get going on a game of indoor soccer or, God have mercy, tackle football, <laughs> invariably somebody gets hurt. We've tried to instill in the kids that, look, when somebody gets hurt, even if you don't think they're actually hurt and that they're faking it just to get somebody else in trouble, you should still apologize for hurting them. And then you should check on them to see if they're okay. What often happens, however, is that the five-year-old gets laid out in a brutal tackle. And one of his older brothers just keeps repeating over and over, I'm sorry, Ezra, I'm sorry, Ezra, I'm sorry, Ezra, I'm sorry, Ezra, I'm sorry, while Ezra is crying his brains out. One of us go downstairs to investigate, 
And we find the offender sitting across the room on the other side just yelling, I'm sorry, Ezra, I'm sorry, Ezra, I'm sorry, Ezra, while Ezra is 15 feet away crying. It's not enough. I we say, it's not enough to just sit there and say, I'm sorry. You have to physically get up and move over to him and check on him and see, is he really hurt and how badly? You might have to get a grown-up or at least an ice pack from the fridge. It's not enough to injure somebody and just say sorry. You have to be prepared to engage in a tangible display of making amends, of making things right. And so too, today, we are reminded that it is one thing to ask for forgiveness from God, to show contrition for our past sins. It is another thing entirely to take steps to make things right. Zacchaeus has made boatloads of money by cheating his neighbors. He's rich, the gospel reports. He shows no sign of guilt about his actions at the beginning of the story. He's not looking for Jesus to confess all his sins. He's not trying to get Jesus to answer a tricky Bible question. He's not screaming for mercy from the street corner. This rich tax collector is just curious about who Jesus is. He wants to see what he looks like. He's not trying to invite Jesus over for dinner. He just has a curiosity about who this Jesus person is that is making news and headlines in Galilee. He's more than aware that as a chief tax collector, he is doing daily work of sinning against his neighbor, but it's making him wealthy. So who cares? Zacchaeus climbs the sycamore tree, and I do not believe that he climbs the tree thinking that his story is going to end by him doing what the rich young ruler could not do in Luke 18, giving up material wealth to benefit the poor and make financial reparations to people he's cheated in the past. So what happens? What is the deal? What takes place between Zacchaeus climbing the sycamore tree and him climbing down to make a pledge to make things right? Two things happen in the story. Two things happen in verse 5 of the story if you have your Bible or the text handy. The first thing that happens is that Jesus names him. Verse 5, when Jesus passed that place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Jesus names the social outcast. Jesus names the well-to-do elitist jerk who mercilessly took the last coins from Mrs. Smith last week to pad his own pocket. Jesus names the vilest offender. Jesus names the most sinful sinner. He names the person at the top of other people's most wanted lists of greed and selfishness. Jesus names him, lets them know he already knows them. He communicates to Zacchaeus the reality that he is already known to the Savior. Zacchaeus is in the awareness of God. His moral failure cannot extinguish his true identity as a beloved child of God, or as Jesus puts it here, a son of Abraham. Jesus names him and calls him kin. Jesus names Zacchaeus. And the second thing that happens in that same verse is that Jesus pledges to share a meal with him, which was a rather socially intimate action. 
In uh, sharing a meal with Zacchaeus, Jesus would be advertising to anyone who heard it or anybody who passed by the open-air windows of Zacchaeus' home and saw Jesus at table with Zacchaeus. He would be advertising that Jesus thought that he and Zacchaeus were on the same societal level. In inviting himself over for dinner, Jesus wasn't being rude. He was being unquestionably Gracious, because a rabbi who studied Torah and who trained disciples to study and live out Torah would not in a million years share a meal with a tax collector for the sole reason that the tax collector's job description ran counter to God's laws. But here Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house as if to say, I know you, Zacchaeus, and we are on the same level. He is raising Zacchaeus' social standing by his presence. I know you, he says, more than you know yourself. I know who you really are past the facade of tax collecting. I know you, Jesus says, and I want to liberate you from this toxic way of life you've Created. I want to share a meal with you so you might find your way out of this pit you're digging for yourself. And in naming Zacchaeus and pledging to share a meal with him, Jesus affirms that in God's view, nobody is past the reach of the gospel. Nobody is so far gone they cannot be rescued by the light of the world. Nobody here has done so much you cannot find renewal and liberation and forgiveness and peace. In response to these gracious acts of, G of Jesus, Zacchaeus is moved to demonstrate the quality of his repentance. He is provoked by the kindness of Christ into tangible action. Zacchaeus does not merely shout, I'm sorry if I offended you to anybody out there. He doesn't just say, I'm sorry that I cheated you to the poor. He pledges right then and there he is going to make things right as best he can. Because when Jesus shows up and calls us down from our trees, when Jesus names us, when Jesus invites himself over to our house and says, I really want to share a meal with you, we cannot help but ask, what then must we do in response? What is a proper response to the grace of God? Religion fails when it invites Christians to keep saying sorry for sins committed without moving them to tangible acts of mercy and justice and restitution. Religion fails when it does not create opportunities for us to make amends with those people whom we have injured. Look, it may not be for you giving half of your money away to the poor, but it might mean doing something tangibly on behalf of somebody your words or actions have injured. You might not be cheating people and collecting additional tax revenue, but if you work for the IRS, you might be. You might be steamrolling people, however, with your acts of anger and impatience, and you might need to figure out what it means for you to make things right. The story of Zacchaeus is ultimately about what happens when we have an encounter with Christ. Because Jesus has already looked up in our tree, church, 
He's already called you and me by our names. He's already invited himself over to our homes for a meal. Today, we stand before a Savior who has moved first, who has demonstrated grace and mercy and love toward us first. A Savior who went to the cross, not when we had our act together, but while we were still sinners, Christ died, and now looks to us to see how will we respond? Will we hear the call of Christ and go away sad like the rich ruler because we can't figure out how to give up our vices? Or will we, like Zacchaeus, find a way to live out our forgiveness in ways that are embodied, tangible, and real? Blessed are those who hear my words, Jesus said, and who do them. May we be a church who hears Christ's words and does what he says. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church say, Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.